but you know that said i did find you know moments of hope in my reporting which was extremely heartening so those those moments of hope that are interwoven throughout the text you know they're not lies or anything like they they are real will we save all species you know probably not no i can i can pretty much say no but i think things are trending better Welcome to another episode of Animalia, where we bring wildlife conservation, climate change, and social justice together to help people connect the dots and get involved. So we are here today talking to Rachel Neuer, who is a acclaimed author uh, of the book Poached that we're going to talk about and has written uh, countless times for publications like New York Times, National Geographic, BBC. Rachel, thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. I first uh, found your work on the elephant kind of forestation climate article you wrote for New York Times. And I, I've been kind of trying to, to chase you down ever since. And in my, in my world, you're, you're a celebrity. And, and, and then we finally, we finally met this summer ahead of the Pangolin Conference. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, everything post-March <laughs> kind of is. And uh, yeah, you know, I love, I love reading your work. It's very in- insightful, inspiring, like I said, and, and for, for people like me, you're, you're the, you're in the celebrity bucket for sure. I wanted to you just start by asking you a little bit about your journey and, you know, just from a life standpoint, when you started, when you knew this type of work was what you wanted to do and, and, you know, what led you uh, all the way to, to writing Poached? Sure. Yeah, it definitely has been a journey. I grew up in Mississippi on the Gulf Coast. So I spent a lot of time outside and my family also had a lot of pets. So I really, as a kid, loved animals and also appreciated nature as a whole. I originally wanted to be a conservationist. So, you know, I studied biology in college and I went on to do an ecology master's degree at the University of East Anglia in the UK. But as I got deeper and deeper into my science coursework, it was becoming uh, harder for me to deny the f- pretty simple fact to myself, which is that I'm not good at math. And I just, I really felt that as if I was going to be a good scientist, I really needed to be good at math. On the other hand, I was good at writing. I'd always enjoyed writing. And somewhere along the way, I heard about this thing called science journalism and thought, you know, that sounds like kind of a perfect compromise for me. I can write about science and conservation especially, but I don't have to actually be the one doing the science. And I really just felt like this would be the way that I could make the most positive difference possible in my life. While I was doing my master's research for the ecology degree, I went to Vietnam and I was investigating how people around two national parks in the deep south of the country use natural resources. So this could be fish, timber, but also animals. And I had been kind of vaguely aware of the poaching crisis at this time. This was 2010, by the way. So things were kind of just beginning to ramp up in terms of um, the elephant poaching crisis in Africa. Um, Also, rhino horn was starting to take off. But it wasn't in the media like it is today. So I'd I'd sort of heard whisperings of this thing, this poaching thing, didn't really know a lot about it, went to Vietnam, and then was interviewing all these people about, you know, how they use the forest and poaching was part of that. And 
that's where I first learned what a pangolin was, you know, a scaly anteater that a lot of people are familiar with today. But, you know, at that time, like hardly anyone in the West knew what a pangolin was. But seeing poaching firsthand, or I guess I didn't see it firsthand, but, you know, I'm talking to the people who are actually going out of the forest to hunt pangolins and they're telling me things like, oh, you know, the pangolins are disappearing and we know that pangolins are disappearing because of our actions, but we're going to keep doing it because people will pay like hundreds of dollars per kilo for these animals. And I just got very curious about what this whole poaching thing was. You know, I kind of felt like there was like this dark crisis in front of me that I couldn't quite put my hands around. And I wanted to learn more and figured, okay, you know, I'll make a transition to journalism and I'm going to focus on poaching as a journalist to answer my own questions, but also to spread the word among general readers. And, you know, we're going to talk about this a little in a little bit, but it's, I also first, when I started working with elephants in 2017, had this mentality that anybody who poaches or is in the world of poaching or in the case of elephants, that's abusive tourism, which is a different kind of shade of evil that happens for, especially in, in Southeast Asia, is a, you know, evil person who hates the animal. And, you know, like everything in life, things are way more nuanced than they appear to be at face value. And yeah, I mean, that it's not necessarily the case that, you know, anybody involved in that business hates the animal. And there are a lot of like life factors that are driving them to make, you know, decisions that they probably shouldn't, they shouldn't be. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, for folks listening, it's not, it's not as black and white as anybody that involved in the poaching industry hates animals. Anybody who's not loves the animals. There are lots of shades of gray on both sides. So tell us about the origin of the book itself in terms of kind of when did it crystallize to you that, you know, you were going to write this and how, how did that come together? And, you know, what was the process from that crystallizing in your head to actually putting pen to paper? So I went to journalism school, science journalism school, a master's program at New York University. And even going into that program, I knew, like I said, I wanted to write about poaching. And one of the assignments in class was to write a book proposal. So, you know, I did my book proposal on poaching. It basically was, you know, the proposal that many iterations later became the proposal for poached. When I graduated, you know, straight up, I was like, okay, I'm ready to write my book now. And I quickly was shot down by every editor and agent I approached, you know, they were basically like, you know, you're, you don't have enough experience. Also, nobody wants to read about animals dying. So I kind of figured, okay, you know, the professionals must know what they're talking about. This is a dumb idea. I'll let it go. So, you know, I did that. I let it go. I went on to write a lot about poaching, you know, for the New York Times, like you said, National Geographic, Scientific American, other people. But, you know, just these short little like 500 to maybe 2000 word stories weren't that satisfying for me. You know, I always felt like, there, you know, there's a lot more nuance, like you said, going on under the surface. There's a lot more depth. You know, I, I wanted to be able to dig into things like policy surrounding wildlife. And that just wasn't possible with stories as short as that. So I think it was, yeah, 2015, one of my professors from NYU, his book agent, she went to Kenya on a vacation and she learned about this whole poaching thing. You know, her eyes were open to the world of poaching and she came back to New York determined to find somebody to write a book about this because she felt like people needed to know about it. And he, my former professor connected us and you know, that's, that was poached. So honestly, the book never would have been written if it wasn't just for, you know, one person sort of deciding 
this is this is a thing that should happen. It, it really took, you know, finding an agent and then subsequently finding one editor who bid on the proposal who also believed in the project. How long did the book take itself to write since it involved involved a lot of travel and, and firsthand investigation for you? How long did it did it take to put together? Right. I mean, I will say for sure, I, I knew that this wasn't something I could report from my desk. That was sort of the problem to begin with. I was doing all these stories just from my home in Brooklyn, and I felt like, you know, I'm missing the big picture here. So I, I signed the proposal, I think, like spring 2016, and I turned the book in the summer, late summer 2017. So it took about a year and a half from start to finish, which was a lot to deal mm. with. Yeah. And you can, I mean, you can tell when reading it, the amount of work and, and attention to detail uh, that, that went to it. So it comes for what it's worth, that, that level of effort and commitment definitely comes off on the pages. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had had double the time, but I just, you know, had to get that thing out there. Yeah. And, and in terms of the book, what's been the most kind of interesting or unexpected feedback since, since publishing it? So I don't know if this is interesting but it's very heartening for me and like the happiest part of it for me is receiving emails from students so there was one English major for example who wrote me and she said she was in some poetry class and they were doing blackout poetry which I don't know if you remember from like your high school English classes or whatever you get a marker and you black out words in someone's book so you're basically like destroying the book and then you leave some words and write a poem with it and she had found poached in like a pile of free discarded books at her library, which is kind of insulting. But as she's making this blackout poetry, she started actually reading the book and got sucked in and said, like, you know, the book made her cry. She had no idea about this world. Like she had never like been aware of this or cared about this stuff or thought she'd be interested. But now, you know, she wants to be like a crusader for animals and you know, getting messages like that from young people who are just like, how can I be involved? Like, I had no idea this book touched me. That's definitely the most heartening part of it for me. I've, I've got a source at Oxford Brooks University, and he actually told me that he's had several students come to him to ask him to be his, their advisor because of Poached. You know, he's like the wildlife trade guy over there. And so that's really, really encouraging for me. That's great. Today on Animalia, we are talking with author and journalist Rachel Neuer about her book, Poached. You can pick up a copy of the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or her website, rachelneuer.com. That's www.rachelnuwer.com. If you want to learn more about the inside world of poaching, while also being inspired that there are people and systems working to end it, this is a great read. It's so important this type of information is widely shared and known. Please support Rachel and conservation journalism and pick up your copy today. Now, back to the podcast. Well, let's let's get into talking about some of the macro themes that stood out for me. And there's a lot of, 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 of really interesting stuff to talk about here, but I sort of pick four themes that I felt kind of were recurring throughout the book and were things that were particularly interesting uh, for myself. So the first one is just, you know, I felt the book did such a good job of kind of the balancing the the pulling back of the curtains and showing the horror of 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 the poaching world and trafficking world and but still giving us belief and hope that things can get better and it's so important to strike this balance because 
you know, if you go too far on the kind of rosy picture, which also I think is a common critique of, you know, a lot of, you know, beautiful wildlife documentaries, like the original planet Earth, things like that. You can sort of feel complacent and content that like, oh, Earth is cool. Like wildlife are happy and there's not much to worry about. But if you go too grim, you can leave people feeling hopeless and depressed. And so, you know, striking that balance is really important. And, and I'm wondering if, was that deliberate on your part or did it just come out that way? Because, you know, it, the balance felt really, really nicely tuned for me. Oh, thank you. That was definitely deliberate. I'm more of a pessimistic person myself, but going into this, my agent was like, this has to be a hopeful book. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> not sure if you've chosen the right topic. But, you know, that said, I did find, you know, moments of hope in my reporting which uh, was extremely heartening. So those those moments of hope that are interwoven throughout the text, you know, they're not lies or anything. Like they they are real. Will we save all species? You know, probably not. No, I can I can pretty much say no. But I think things are trending better. I just wish that they would trend better faster. Yeah. Do you, now obviously you wrote this book pre um, COVID nineteen. Yeah. Do you feel at a macro level COVID you know, will have a positive or negative effect on the trend of things getting better faster? I think COVID will definitely have a positive effect. I just hope that the effect is um, significant and commiserate with the effect it should be, given, you know, this pandemic we're still suffering through. Yeah, like we really, I believe, have a crucial, crucial opportunity here to significant re. re- significantly reform the way we approach nature, the way we treat nature, the way we interact with nature. You know, humans respond to crises and we're definitely in a crisis right now. You know, it's it's just a wonderful opportunity to change things for the better. And, you know, I hate to describe anything related to COVID as wonderful, but there's definitely a silver lining opportunity now that I think the world needs to seize upon. I'm concerned that we're not moving on that fast enough. You know, there's always talk in the beginning of these things like, oh, yeah, it comes back to the wildlife trade and the way we treat nature, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, very quickly, all that kind of origin stuff is overshadowed by the immediate problems and the human yeah. side of things. One of the things that COVID has put a spotlight on for me, and I mean, this is going to be more on the negative side, but is a lot of people sort of, especially early in COVID, I think we're, and people are always looking for things, things to feel good about, the sort of the reemergence of nature right across the planet and you know nature gets to breathe again and there's there's some element of that that's true not dolphins in venice is true but but in terms of like some of the pollution levels temporarily paused although there's no reason to believe that they they're not going to just like return with with fever but you know it also you know so some of my friends that are in conservation have really struggled financially and it the spotlight that is kind of put on this is that, unfortunately, a lot of the conservation work is financed through donations and grants and altruism that an ecotourism that uh, quickly saps up during a pandemic and economic crisis. And a lot of the poaching world is financed by just wealthy elite, elites who are, are pretty, you know, much don't get impacted by an economic crisis in the same way. Do you feel that 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 reality is one of the bigger things that has to change about this space in order to, you know, sort of turn the tide fast enough to save, save more species? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, conservation is chronically underfunded, and the pandemic has just shined a light on that fact that's been there all the time. I mean, in Africa, something like 90% of protected areas are 
primarily funded by tourism or by donations or a combination thereof. You know, we, we really need to change our priorities and the way we, you know, yeah, prioritize nature. Wealthy Western nations like the U.S., Europe, we should be subsidizing protected areas in Africa because a lot of those countries have set aside a greater proportion of land for protection than we have. You know, we've already destroyed so much of our ecosystems. And now we're just kind of like, okay, Africa, you know, shoulder that burden for us. Thanks. You know, there, there needs to be some just complete uh, paradigm shift in how we view and approach conservation funding. Yeah. Another theme that stood out to me, and, and this is actually one that was revealed to me really for the first time from your book that I've since done my own kind of additional investigation on, is this kind of tug of war out there between the role of you know captive wildlife farm, farming or wildlife conservation commercialization. I, I believe it was even just a couple weeks ago that uh, Rwanda that legalized wildlife conservation commercialization, similar to the way South Africa has done. And, you know, there's certainly like at just face value, you can understand some of the logic and the argument that says, hey, let's say rhinos, they're, they're like a, a, cla- a sort of one of the best examples of this. If we can sort of sustainably farm rhino horn without and, and keep the rhinos sort of safe, we can, you know, satisfy that demand that we can't, you know, sort of totally squash without well, instead of wild and, and, and poached rhinos. But your book really talks about how. You know, and I think it does a great job of presenting both sides of this. You know, in the Rhino case, John Hume is the you know kind of the the the, the sort of biggest example of a proponent of this. Where do you stand on this topic coming out of writing this book? And you know, what did you learn about it that maybe you know changed your thought at all? And 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 where you know where where do you think we are with this with this debate? Especially seeing now another country in Rwanda kind of move this route in the way South Africa has has tried to. It's really interesting about Rwanda. I actually had not heard about that. So now I've got some homework for after this call. You know, I my thinking around wildlife farming has shifted around a lot. Like, you know, before the book, during the book, even since the book. I do think that there's no one size fits all. You can't just be like, you know, wildlife farming, it works or it doesn't work. It really depends on the species, the context, you know, what, what that animal is being used for, where it's being farmed, how tightly controlled the farms are. In the case of rhino horns, you know, I went into this book project kind of having this idea in my head about who John Hume is. And, you know, in case listeners don't know, you know, he's the largest private rhino owner in the world. He is, I think it's something like over a thousand animals. I can't remember off the top of my head. He's in South Africa. He's just a very, very strong proponent for legalizing rhino horn trade. And, you know, a lot of people say that he's doing that because he wants to make a bunch of money. But, you know, John Hume made his money elsewhere. And having visited him firsthand, like, you know, I went in thinking, oh, here's this greedy guy, whatever. But talking to him, spending time with him at his, his ranch, I realized, you know, no, this is a guy who I think actually genuinely loves his animals and cares about rhinos and cares about the species future. And he, for one, isn't advocating for rhino horn trade so he can make a buck. He's just advocating for it so he can pay for security to keep his animals safe. Cause I think he's shelling out something like a million dollars a year or something incredible like that, just to protect his rhinos from poachers. It's just the reason we have so many rhinos is because of how well South Africa has done with commercializing those animals, which is just a fact, you know, rhinos were on kind of approaching the brink of extinction. Then South Africa 
legalize private ownership of them for for tourism, for hunting, and the species population went up because people suddenly had incentive to bring rhinos onto their property and breed them. So that's rhinos, but in terms of rhino horn, I just don't think it would work for satiating the market because in v- in places like Vietnam, for example, customers really value wild animals and you know there's just an intrinsic value within the wildness and they see an, see an animal that was raised on a ranch or a farm as being this sort of like docile you know cow-like creature whereas a wild animal has had to eke out a living and you know like survive and all that potency of the wildness is then channeled into its horn or you know if it's a tiger it's flesh or bones or whatever and farmed animals just aren't part of the appeal at all. You know, you can ask any wildlife user in Vietnam and they're going to say, no, you know, I want a wild animal. So I don't think that's going to be some kind of solution because that's not what people want. Some users there are even asking for wet horns, which means horns that come like with flesh still, like dried flesh still attached to them to prove that it came from a wild rather than a farmed animal or, you know, photos of the animal that it came from, you know, killed. And, you know, even if people did want farmed rhino horn there just isn't enough farmed rhinos to satiate that demand so that's a few arguments and against the i guess efficacy of farming rhinos for their horns to satisfy the market but i could go on and on in terms of the captive breeding stuff you know whether we're talking about pythons in indonesia or i don't know vicuña in south uh, south america like every every situation is different yeah and and you know, not every the sort of ethics and and humanity of of every animal is not equal from a farming standpoint as well. So, like rhinos can, you know, there it seems to be there is a a like rather, you know, painless and 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 sort of a humane way to remove a rhino horn, and that's been done also by conservationists for a long time to prevent poaching. But then you get into, I mean, the part of the book, the only part of the book I had to stop, literally put the book down and take a break, and I. It was hard for me to come back. It was you know in one of the later chapters with bear bile, I, 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 I could I, I I thankfully didn't even I, I disciplined myself from not looking up images because just just even that and and you you know I could I could almost sense when you were writing it like how how detailed do you want to get here for readers because even just that those couple pages where you kind of detailed the the kind of visual it was. It was it was traumatizing just to read, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, those those poor bears, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, the the next theme I want to chat about is you know traditional Asian medicine, and you know, you did a nice job of sort of unpacking this a little bit. And look, we we could write, uh, I'm sure you could write uh, multiple books just on this topic. It seems to be you know one of the biggest drivers of wildlife trafficking. On a, on a global level is traditional Asian medicine, particularly in places like um, China and Vietnam. And, you know, I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> it's certainly driven by tradition and, and traditional culture. Do you feel that it is more or less contained with the older generations in these countries and that it will sort of fade away naturally as those populations move on? Or do you think there's evidence that it is getting passed on successfully to younger generations, these beliefs and culture, and we are, you know, the fight is, is going to be as, as like intense on this topic, you know, 30, 40 years from now as it is today? Great question. There is, 
evidence that younger people are less interested in this stuff. There's like a very, there's a flourishing and growing animal welfare movement in China, for example, that just wasn't there before. It's very recent. That said, you know, there are younger people who do believe in this stuff and do use it. I met in reporting poached a guy in Hanoi who is, you know, maybe like 30, 31. He was an architect, you know, college educated, of course. And yeah, he just, he uses tiger products and rhino horn and completely believes in them. You know, he's like, you know, my doctor like gives these to me. So therefore it's the best and therefore I'm doing it. So it's not like every young person in Vietnam or China is rejecting this stuff, but I think it is going to kind of naturally diminish over time. Whether we have the time to wait is a different question. You know, a lot of conservationists say, you know, we just don't have like the 30, 40 years we need to phase this stuff out. Like species don't have that long. Another thing to point out is that China's really pushing traditional Chinese medicine now. It's like one of these like cultural things that they're trying to like, I don't know, beef up and also export around the world. So, you know, it's it's going to be harder to phase that demand out if China is actively trying to build it up. Yeah, it's disheartening. And, and it's and it's probably part of, you know, China's mission to, you know, bring Chinese culture to the world, which just on that, there's nothing wrong or unusual with that. I and mean, we've done it in the West many times. But unfortunately, like if it, if it includes traditional Chinese medicine, that is, yeah, that's just going to perpetuate this problem. Yeah. And I mean, there's a way to do traditional Chinese medicine that doesn't involve like killing endangered species. But China just hasn't really come out and like taken a strong stance on phasing those endangered species out of its various formulas. You know, the majority of traditional Chinese medicine is herbs, not animals. But for whatever reason, there just hasn't been a strong push to kind of update traditional medicine to reflect conservation values. It also can be misleading for people when they hear, like, for instance, when China passed the ban on pangolins, but it was for pangolin meat. It was not for traditional Chinese medicine. And so it gives China sort of an opportunity to, to sort of look like they're doing the right work, but but then they're not really getting into the, the bigger issue. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, <clears throat> the government is long invested in wildlife farms there for medicine. Like the government got tiger farming going in the late 80s. Government, I think, is investing in trying to do pangolin farms. So, you know, I think there's a lot of pull there with that industry and they're just um, hesitant to to actually stamp it out, unfortunately. Yeah. The the last major theme, which we started touching on a little bit earlier when we were talking about your book, was is just the sort of nuance of the poaching world one of them. So for every kind of, you know, wildlife that's poached and trafficked, it, you know, there's, there's likely a local community member who is able to stay alive and feed their family from this work. And that's not the person financing the work. That's the person getting paid to do the, the, the work, whether it's the, the poaching itself or, you know, sort of aiding with the transport of, of that. This inherently seems like one of the reasons that makes poaching so hard to end is in that, like, you know, Again, it's not necessarily that the, the people on the ground are evil, malevolent people. They're trying to survive in countries that are hard to survive in. So I wanted to ask you, like, do, do you think there's a feasible world where locals in you know places like Africa, Vietnam, Laos will be able to make as much, if not more money from protecting wildlife as they do from exploiting it? And if so, like, how do we get there and how long do you think that'll take? Hmm. Well, I think, first of all, it's like really hard to talk 
in generalities when it comes to this because you know we're talking about like different countries different species different users for a place like say vietnam or indonesia a lot of people who are doing the poaching are doing so opportunistically you know they find some animal in their field or they're out in the forest collecting whatever and find an animal so like they don't need to be poaching to survive they have other ways of making a livelihood so in that case i feel like we just well people there need to step up punishment for this stuff and deterrence and educational programs and all sorts of ways to just, you know, move people away from that supplemental income stream. In Africa, there are some positive models and in Asia as well of, you know, former poachers being hired to become protectors of nature. And that's really great and encouraging, but, you know, we just can't apply it to like every single person across the world that poaches. It's just not realistic. I, you know, it's it's going to take a mix of better tourism initiatives, better conservation funding. You know, if you can just pay people to protect nature instead of to poach it. You know, there's places in Zambia that are doing that or using carbon credits to do that. You know, just here's some money, like protect this ecosystem instead of, you know, poach or cut down the trees. As long as you keep it whole, you can get this income stream. And, you know, unfortunately, that's just like what it comes down to, like, People are going to try to make money however they can, just like we do here in the West. And you just have to make it more profitable for them to protect nature rather than destroy it. Yeah, it feels for me the most viable path forward on this is to get to a place where we do have a global carbon tax system. And, you know, because there we can, you know, there is data that, you know, points to the role many species play in protecting ecosystems and those ecosystems then sequestering carbon. Some animals sequester carbon themselves. I think of like blue whales as an example, tons of it. And then some animals like, you know, elephants are key for forestation, which has a huge role in this. And so there is, you know, kind of waterfall economics we can design that show the the economic value of an elephant's life. It does exist. It's just getting to a place where one you know, we're able to universally agree on what that is, that math. And two, you know, there is a way to actually transact in that regard of saying, hey, if I, you know, I have 20 elephants on, you know, sort of my, my, my land and area that I'm protecting and I should, you know, I can get paid for that in the form of, you know, carbon rebates because they're, they're essentially sequestering uh, carbon. That to me feels like the most viable path towards to making this to making this a reality. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, we've struggled in the past to kind of put a figure on ecosystem services because you know carbon is a huge part of that. There's pollination, fresh water provision. You know, it goes the list goes on and on. But you know, even when people come up with a number, it's you know it's just that human tendency to like not really subscribe value to things that we can't like tangibly see. You know, it's like oh pollination. You know, okay, what does that mean? Yeah, we. I think in addition to just, you know, actually paying for those things in the way that we should, lifting people out of poverty can just do so much to help alleviate this problem in general. And, you know, it doesn't have to be like nature lifting them up out of poverty. That can be a part of it, but just general development programs to help people out because people don't want to be poaching. That's one thing I definitely learned in reporting poached. It's hard work. You know, you're out in the field, you're getting eaten by insects, you know, in Africa, maybe you're even risking your life if you're, you know, out there with rangers. You know, if they can make a living doing something else, they will. 
Just for listeners, a, g- a great book I recommend. I don't know if Rachel, if you've been able to read it yourself, is Kate Raworth's book on donut economics. Oh, cool. But yeah. basically, it's it's you know new macroeconomic thinking that actually accounts for environmental externalities as costs. Traditional macroeconomics don't. They sort of treat environmental externalities as just like a never-ending pool of runoff that you don't need to worry about. You can shove aside. And that's and Kate's book sort of is, you know, I think the the next wave of 21st century economist thinking. But yeah, I definitely wouldn't recommend checking it out. It's great. It's a great read. Yeah. All right. So some some final questions that I think we can kind of get through pretty quickly, but I wanted to make sure to include some of these. The first is just you know, asking you based on your experience and knowledge now and all the work you've done research, what do you believe are the most effective tools we have for wildlife conservation? I mean, I think COVID is a really effective tool and, you know, we would be, yeah, we would really be missing out if we let this slip by this opportunity without really seizing upon it as a way to change minds about using wildlife and destroying nature. God, there was a campaign that just launched, I think this week in Vietnam, I think it's called like never again. And it's just trying to really connect in people's minds, you know, going to a restaurant and ordering that pangolin and now like being in lockdown for COVID. So that would be probably my number one tool. Number two would be just more useful or not useful, productive relationships between, you know, NGOs, governments, different government agencies, donors, you know, there's a lot of infighting and like lack of coordination among all these groups. They all have the same goal, but it's just not done in a coordinated way. If we could all just kind of like pull the wagon together, I think we'd get a lot farther. Yeah. It's incredible when you dig into it, how much lack of cooperation there is in the conservation space and how kind of competitive it is and people are wanting each other. Yeah. It's yeah. Again, I think it's just like, it comes down to there being so little funding. Everybody's just of seeing each other as competitors. Yep. Uh, and then I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, was it the the elephant sort of stare down instant, uh, scene you had? Was that in Chad in that park or was that a different? Oh, yeah, park? yeah. Yep. That was yep. Hop or Half Ear, <laughs> the elephant. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in the book, it, it felt like you were on the precipice of demise. <laughs> yeah, that's how it felt in life too. <laughs> Was that in the in the course of making this book? Was that the sort of most riveting wildlife encounter you had, or is another one that maybe yeah, you no, want to I, share that you did, yeah, didn't like, write, didn't make it in the book? People, yeah. Sometimes when I'm doing a talk about the book, people are like, "Oh, did you ever feel like you were in danger?" And that's definitely like that elephant encounter in Chad was the most in danger I felt, whether from a an animal or a person, in making this book. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I didn't really know anything about elephants going into this, but. Um, an elephant expert that morning had just told me about like saving his advisor from being like tusked to death. And uh, then the people I was with who were elephant people seemed very nervous about this elephant approaching us. And I was just like, that's it. Like I'm going to die here. So yeah, I don't know. It kind of put me off elephants. Like I love elephants, but sort of like you guys stay over there and I'm going to stay over here sort of thing. Yeah. As someone who has, done some like field work with elephants i can tell you elephants are 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 dangerous animals as they should be and i hope they stay that way because if they're not dangerous animals that means they're not they're not being elephants yeah so, totally um absolutely uh, and the, <laughs> the strength and size of them is is hard to describe until you till you're, you're there. sitting there yeah and there's an yeah. elephant walking towards you for sure yeah. Cool. Um, so I want to just real quickly, and we could we could kind of go through this in kind of a little bit of rapid fire uh, style. But 
you know, what do you, what would you say are the most common misconceptions of the following constituents? So poachers, as we said earlier, traffickers, kind of kingpins, the, the string pullers, field conservationists, and then, you know, what I'll call is like pro-wildlife government officials. Like where are the misconceptions of these, these four uh, groups? Okay. So poachers, I'll, I'll call back to your earlier statement about, you know, all poachers being evil and hating animals. That's not true. Most poachers don't really think about animals. They're just thinking about surviving traffickers slash kingpins i guess the fact that like there's like two kingpins pulling all the strings like there are some kingpins that would be amazing for us to actually take down and put in jail but you know it's kind of like this game of whack-a-mole like there's just an endless supply of people who can pop up and sort of fill those roles what was the next one Uh, field field conservationists yeah yeah conservationists i think Assuming that they can like play every role possible, you know, they can be like animal expert and like development expert and criminologist and, you know, I don't know, prosecutor and everything else, you know, like we're just putting too much responsibility on conservationists who just don't have, you know, this whole suite of training. Nobody has all that expertise. We really need to bring in people from other fields, whether it's, you know, criminologists, sociologists, behavior experts policy experts, everything. And last one, the it's pro-wildlife politicians. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know if there's like misconceptions. I guess one misconception I had going into it is that like everybody's sort of on the same team, but there's definitely a number of people who set wildlife policies who like, for example, I, I heard a lot about you, people in Vietnam who are like the top of the wildlife policy chain who actually use rhino horn and believe in rhino's horn, rhino horn's efficacy. So that's a problem, obviously. Yep. Do you think that <clears throat> synthetic alternatives for things like rhino horn and bear bile are effective tools for combating poaching? Or do you think they they just sort of keep the demand market going? I guess this is similar to the wildlife farming question, but do you think these synthetics are effective tools or they do they both A, keep wildlife demand going and B, and B, not satisfy those in the end anyway once they like can't, people who want the, the real thing uh, regardless? Mm. Are, they, are they effective tools or not? No, I don't think they're effective tools at all. There's been groups that have tried to get this started. Like there's a group called Pembient that tried a few years ago to make a synthetic rhino horn, which I mean, conservationists really slammed the idea for a number of reasons, from driving up demand to confusing law enforcement, but it just didn't really take, you know, people in Vietnam, again, they want the real thing. They want it from an animal, from a wild animal. There's also synthetic bear biles already available. It has the active compounds in bear bile. You know, it works like bear bile even better because it doesn't come with all the, like, the pus and the, like, cancerous cells and things that come from bears kept in cages their whole lives but you know again people just want like bear bile from bears yeah especially if like they're using it for traditional chinese medicine and they're convinced in their head that the authentic thing makes a difference even though in most cases bear bile is unique in that there actually are some like medicinal aspects of bear bile as there are for all forms of bile bear just bear bile just has a higher ratio of the kind of beneficial ingredient almost everything else is a complete placebo right exactly yeah bear bile is kind of like the one exception of something that actually has some efficacy yeah you went undercover 
a couple times in this book. Once in uh, Ho Chi Minh City, where you are doing your best to not be a journalist. <laughs> and and then again at King's Romans, where you are a prostitute. Correct. Just in just in 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 get up only. I should <laughs> I should caveat. What happens in King's Romans stays in King's exactly. Romans. Which which of those undercover incidents was they see they both seem a little nerve wracking in reading your kind of journey with, with both, but which one was the most nerve wracking mm-hmm. and why? That's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. You know, the the restaurant thing was like my first time trying to do something like that. And it kind of like sprung up on me really quickly because I was like, oh, we'll just go here. And then my former host sister from studying abroad in Vietnam, she's Vietnamese, she kind of like got super freaked out, which freaked me out. But then as soon as we got there, it was like, oh, this is fine. So that was sort of like an acute moment of fear that was quickly alleviated. King's Romans, on the other hand, was something I was planning for months. And like my anxiety about it was kind of like growing and building. I was starting to have like nightmares about getting eaten by tigers and things. But again, it's one of those things where once we got there, it was like, oh, like nobody seems to care at all. So they were both anxiety inducing for different reasons. Got it. Well, they, 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 they read for some, they meant, meant for some fun reading. Excellent. <laughs> and then the last question I want to ask is, you know, I, I, I always think it's important to flag these things, but you know, what did you get a sense of? There's to me a kind of big, well, there's a big mental health crisis in the world regardless, but I think it's, it's, it's unique for conservationists in the sense of, you know, how, those that dedicate their lives to this work, A, how underfunded, right? And the anxiety from that, but also just the constant uphill battle they're fighting and, you know, can often feel like, you know, one step forward, two steps back in terms of progress. How would you describe the sort of the, the mental health needs and crisis for people on the ground in this, in this work? And how do, we, how do we better address that? So that's definitely outside my area of expertise, but I'll say that like some conservationists are just like weirdly optimistic. And I think Mm -hmm. maybe that's some kind of coping mechanism they've adopted. Mm -hmm. You know, like their study subjects are like barreling towards the verge of extinction and they're just like, yeah, we can do it. Like chin up. So like bravo for the people who have managed to do that. Then there's also the conservationists who are kind of like super cynical sort of cynical idealists, I suppose. I'm probably in that camp myself. I'm not a conservationist, but yeah, obviously I dabble in this world. I will say, and I touch on this in the book, that mental health for rangers is probably a more acute problem. You know, like these are men, mostly men, who are like literally risking their lives and just, yeah, incredibly difficult jobs and sometimes having to, you know, shoot people, like people they might even know you know, mm-hmm. poachers. There is one effort in South Africa, I think I touched on in the book, of bringing in a therapist to talk to rangers in Kruger National Park. And I really think it would be helpful to emulate that, you know, across the continent and even beyond, you know, across the world. So yep. awesome. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a need and and I can see and you talk you did talk about in the book for rangers, especially they sometimes have to gun down like people in their neighborhood. And that can be very, very traumatic. <clears throat> yeah. All right. So lastly, uh, four rapid fire questions. Just the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask these things, uh, you don't have to overthink it. No, they're, they're easy questions. So the, the first one is what is one, you know, wildlife documentary or TV series that you think people should see that is not like widely known, like planner style? Like, what do you think people should go, go watch? The Last Unicorn. I think that's like a perfect 
like a metaphor for like poaching you know it's like you've got like powerful king haggard and he just wants to like collect all these animals for him and like he's decimating the species as a result so there i'll go with the last unicorn <laughs> um all right how about book uh book i just read the overstory recently and i just thought it was like so well done it made me think about trees in a different way and like how trees connect to even our urban lives mm. and yeah i look at trees differently now so cool. the overstory and what is your favorite animal um i live with a cat so i'm partial to my cat but i suppose a pangolin you know i'm really into the pangolins they're just cool little underdogs and you know, I'm rooting for them. Yeah, they're they're incredible. Yeah. And then last one, what is one behavior change that you think almost anybody can adopt that, you know, would help this planet that you think uh, more people should, should adopt and do? I don't know. I don't think there's like one thing, but I think everybody can do one thing, you know, whether it's like meatless Mondays or composting or whatever, or Okay, you know what? Actually, I'm going to change my mind. The one thing that everybody can do is those of us who live in a democracy can actually vote for politicians who care about these things. And then we can hold those politicians accountable. You know, like we're not going to save the world by, you know, everybody recycling. Like we need some top down policies to actually address this. So that's fitting, fitting for the week. we are Yeah, yeah there, there's a good answer. Yeah, it's, it came to me. Um, what's next for you? Is there another book on the horizon or are you taking a break and, you know, you know, yeah, I mean, wildlife books, um, surprise don't, uh, do that well, <laughs> you know, I don't know, maybe happy wildlife books do well, but poach did not. So I just don't think that writing another book on this topic is an effective way to get the message out. So I'm probably just going to keep doing journalism instead. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, 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 I'm glad this book's out there because I think, I think that will change over time and hopefully this is the type of book that maybe doesn't <clears throat> fly off the shelves in year one or two, but has a 10 to 20 year shelf life to it. Yeah, I, I definitely hope so. And I think it's, I think when it came out too, you know, a lot of friends were like, I'm already depressed enough about the world. I don't really want to read about animals dying. And I was like, well, you know, fair enough. It is 2018, but you know, maybe we've turned a corner and people will actually start having the bandwidth to think about what we're doing to nature and how we need to change and, this book is there for them. When yeah, but again, again, for those listeners, I, I do want to flag that the book is not just a grim death book. There really are things that you know you touch on that give reason for hope and and interview and, and talk to people that are doing incredible work. There's a lot of inspiration that I, I you can take from this book that I took from this book. So I know on, on face value it might look like a death book because it's called poached. But but it really isn't. So for folks listening, I, I definitely encourage, you know, that's true. And I'll add, I tried really hard to make it entertaining. Like I know the the subject is heavy. So there's a lot of cheesy jokes and like little adventures and things. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm well fun. aware of it. Yeah, exactly. I tried to make it fun. <laughs> it is. It really is. And it's a and it's a it's a fast read. It's not like you know, it's not too dense and scientific, but there's enough science in it where you feel you're getting educated and informed. Yep. So I, yeah, I think you did a great job with it. Thank you. Thanks a yeah. lot. Well, Rachel, thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks absolutely. for the work you do. It's really, really important, really valuable. And I'm glad we have gotten a chance to get to know each other a little bit. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Thank you so much again for your interest. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you for, for all you do. Yeah.